0: Welcome to the Green Investor. I'm Caleb Silver, the editor in chief of Investopedia and your guide on our journey together into what it means to be a green investor today, how to navigate the terrain of investing vehicles and platforms, and where this investing theme is headed. We have a lot to talk about on this week's show, including the Securities and Exchange Commission's latest proposal for requiring public companies to disclose their carbon footprints and climate risks to investors. We'll also meet Connor Chung, a junior at Harvard University who helps lead Divest Harvard, a student-led group that has pushed the university to wind down and divest its $53 billion endowment from fossil fuels. It's incredible what they've managed to do. That's all coming up. But first, the ground rules. This podcast is for informational and educational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. We will not make recommendations to buy, sell, or hold a particular security or asset, although we may discuss financial products with our guests. Some of our guests may invest in securities mentioned on this podcast. Some of our guests may sell or market securities mentioned on this podcast, but all listeners should do their own research or consult with their financial advisor or broker before making any investment decisions. Let's do the news. The Securities and Exchange Commission, the top regulator for public companies here in the U.S., has sketched out the first mandatory rules for public companies to disclose their carbon footprint and risks from climate change. The proposal would require all publicly traded companies to state climate related risks their businesses face in reports they file to the SEC. In addition, emissions they admit, as well as material emissions from suppliers and customers, would also be required for disclosure. Companies that have publicly pledged to cut their emissions or reach other climate related goals would need to lay out detailed plans and progress. A couple of things worth noting. This is still a proposal, not a requirement or a law. We're in the middle of a 30-day comment period on this, and a lot can happen. Second, there's still a lack of clarity in the proposal that needs to be addressed. For example, whether a company makes a target or whether a company has a transition plan is up to them, according to the proposal. But at the heart of it is the SEC's desire to have companies provide information on management's role in adjusting a business's strategy in response to climate change risk so that investors can make quote-unquote better-informed investment or voting decisions. And U.S. regulators are pretty late to the game on this one. The European Central Bank and other European regulators have made climate risk disclosures mandatory since 2020. We'll link to the SEC's proposal and request for comment in the show notes. Demand for sustainable stock funds fell off a cliff in February as Russia's invasion of Ukraine hit investor sentiment and higher gas prices and energy security fears propelled oil and gas stocks and ETFs higher. Equity ESG funds, which make up the bulk of funds focused on sustainable investing, saw a 60% slowdown in inflows to just $9.4 billion during the month, according to Refinitiv. That compares with inflows of $24.4 billion in the prior month. Total assets under management in equity ESG funds stood at $3.2 trillion at the end of February, down 9.3% since the start of the year. The shocking surge in nickel prices prompted by Russia's invasion of Ukraine has brought new risks to light in the electric vehicle market, especially given their dependence on metals for battery production. In case you missed it, on March 8th, the price of nickel, which averaged about $18,000 per metric ton in 2021, shot up an unprecedented 250% in a little more than 24 hours to more than $100,000 per metric ton. The London Metal Exchange, the main commodities market for globally traded industrial metals, halted trading for a week and took the highly unusual step of canceling billions of dollars worth of trades. Since then, trading in nickel has resumed and prices have come down somewhat, but remain volatile and are about 50% above 2021 levels. Barron's reported that the price it tracks of a basket of EV battery metals is up 64% so far in 2022, which theoretically could raise the sticker price of an electric vehicle by as much as $2,000. The world's biggest EV maker, Tesla, applied price increases to all versions of its vehicles in the United States, and CEO Elon Musk noted on Twitter that the company was seeing significant inflation in raw materials costs. Climate-related losses to life and property in the Middle East and Central Asia are set to worsen if the region fails to adapt to higher temperatures and extreme weather events, according to a new report from the International Monetary Fund. Temperatures across the region have risen by 1.5 degrees Celsius, that's 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit, over the last 30 years, which is twice the global increase of just 0.7 degrees Celsius. Economic growth in five of the hottest countries, that's Bahrain, Djibouti, Mauritania, Qatar, and the United Arab Emirates, is at risk, according to the report. An increase of one degree Celsius in those countries results in an immediate decline in per capita economic growth of about two percentage points. London's mayor, Sadiq Khan, wants the city to issue over 500 million pounds or $677 million in green bonds to help meet climate goals and reduce energy costs. The financing of those green bonds would go towards low-carbon projects such as making social housing and public buildings more energy efficient. That, according to the mayor's office, could reduce heating bills and address some of the highest levels of fuel poverty in the country. A heat wave in Antarctica earlier this month was so extreme that it may be the largest temperature increase above normal ever recorded, according to nonprofit Berkeley Earth. The temperature at Concordia Research Station, a European outpost in East Antarctica, measured almost 70 degrees Fahrenheit, or 38.5 degrees Celsius, hotter than normal on March 18th, reaching a high of 11 degrees Fahrenheit. While that's still below freezing, Antarctica's ice is cracking. The Conger Ice Shelf, a floating platform the size of Rome on the eastern coast of the continent, broke off on March 15th. Since the beginning of satellite observations in the 1970s, the tip of the shelf had been disintegrating into icebergs in a series of what glaciologists call calving events. Global carbon emissions from the power sector jumped to a record last year as the recovery from the pandemic boosted electricity demand and utilities burned more coal amid a gas crunch. That's according to Ember, a London-based think tank. Emissions from generating power rose 7% from a year earlier, the biggest gain since 2010 and 3% above pre-COVID levels. The trend could continue this year as countries turn to coal, the dirtiest fossil fuel of all amid these high gas prices. And a mighty wind is blowing off the coast of California and the U.S. Department of the Interior wants to capitalize on it. The U.S. expects to hold its inaugural auction this year for floating wind farms along the California coast. Offshore wind is a key piece in President Biden's push to fight climate change. His administration envisions installing enough wind turbines along the country's coast by 2030 to generate 30 gigawatts of electricity. Federal officials have identified two areas for possible development along California's big coast. One is off Humboldt County in the north and the other near Morro Bay in the central part of the state. Speaking of the Biden administration, the White House released its budget proposal this week and inside the $5.8 trillion ask are key international climate investments. Overall, over $11 billion is pledged towards international climate finance with $5.3 billion in congressional appropriations and more than $5.5 billion in development finance and credit programs. Those include a bilateral climate program through the Department of State and the U.S. Agency for International Development, of 2.3 billion dollars, a green climate fund of 1.6 billion dollars, clean technology fund which would comprise a 520 million dollar loan and a 30 million dollar grant, leveraging 3. billion dollars in overall investments, a clean energy program which would total 200 million dollars in mandatory funding, the first year of a billion dollar Department of Energy program to build resilient supply chains for climate and clean energy equipment through engagement with other countries. Now keep in mind that this is just a proposal and has a very long way to go before it gets voted on. Universities in the United States are sitting on endowments worth hundreds of billions of dollars. That money has been invested for decades and has compounded over and over to produce staggering sums of wealth for the most prestigious universities in the country. Harvard University alone boasts an endowment greater than $50 billion. But up until 2021, a large percentage of that endowment was invested in the fossil fuel industry. Last September, Divest Harvard, a student-led organization inside the university, pressured Harvard's trustees and its president to wind down those investments after more than a decade of protests, student actions and lawsuits. Divest Harvard's victory paved the way for other student-led organizations to pressure their universities to do the same thing, but the battle to wrest university endowments from the grips of the fossil fuel industry is not over. Connor Chung is one of the lead organizers of Divest Harvard, and he joins us now on The Green Investor. Welcome, Connor. Thanks so much for having me. You're an organizer, but you're also a student at Harvard. What year are you, what's your
1: major, and how did you get into this? Yes, so I'm a junior at Harvard, and I got into this my freshman year because the climate crisis is one of the defining issues for our generation. Coming to university, I was really excited to be part of a community that could give me the tools to make a difference on this crucial issue. The more I learned about Harvard's investment practices, the more heartbroken I was to see that this institution with such a potential to make a positive difference um, due to its outsized financial power, due to its moral and academic power, and so on, was actively supporting the companies that profit from the destruction of our future. So it's in that context that I first decided to get involved in the fossil fuel divestment movement and why I've been proud to be part of it ever since. Well, you guys are making things happen there. We're going to get into that in a second, but
0: tell us about Divest Harvard. When was it started? Who started it? And what were the original goals
1: when it was started? So we are in year 10 of the fossil fuel divestment movement more broadly. Fossil fuel divest Harvard was one of the early organizations in it. And a decade ago, students and activists and scholars began to realize that there was a fundamental problem that the business model of fossil fuel companies is simply mathematically incompatible with the scientific consensus the amount of oil gas and coal at producers fingertips is far larger than the magnitude that can be safely burned and thus if we don't do anything we are either on track for massive ecological catastrophe or massive stranded assets so faced with this problem 10 years ago the activists at harvard and elsewhere began to look to the past at times when civil society and the financial world had uh, confronted similar issues uh, regarding the consequences that their money was having. And one thing people began to look to was the fight against apartheid in South Africa, when universities and churches and pensions and so on had realized that by divesting from South Africa, they could apply social and political and economic pressure to bring about equality and justice. And divestment worked in South Africa, played a massive role. And it was inspired by that, that activists decided to apply some of the same techniques here. So this was the dawn of the divestment movement, and since then, it's experienced some pretty incredible successes. Just a couple of weeks ago, the amount of assets under management of funds that have divested crossed $40 trillion, including some of the most prestigious universities and most powerful pensions. I was proud to be one small part of this when my own institution of Harvard University, as you mentioned, the world's richest private university, jumped on the bandwagon last fall. Now, as we look to the next 10 years, activists aren't going away, and an economy that works for everyone that protects rather than destroys our planet and our future is is in all of our interests. And activists will be wanting investors to make clear whether they want to be a roadblock or whether they want to be part of the journey to that more just and stable future. Well, you won that big battle last September. We're going to talk about that, ultimately convincing
0: Harvard's trustees and its president, Lawrence Bacow, to wind down its investments in the fossil fuel industry. You wanted more from that battle, though. You want a complete divestment. Why didn't the university
1: go all the way, as far as you know? When Harvard announced its divestment commitment, it was a massive victory. As you know, for 10 years, they had refused to acknowledge the reality of climate risk and of the structural peril that the climate crisis and that fossil fuel companies' activities posed their portfolio. And so it was a massive reversal. It was a massive win for our communities and our planet when Harvard University uh, announced that it would divest from fossil fuels this past fall. And as you know, since then, we've been continuing to push them. We want Harvard to, we want to ensure that this is carried out in good faith and with requisite haste, there is no time to spare when it comes to protecting Harvard's endowment from climate risk, when it comes to taking on fossil fuel companies and and working towards environmental justice. We want to make sure that this is carried out at the necessary scope. There's no room for half measures. And we continue to fight to ensure that Harvard cuts other fossil fuel conflicts of interest. So absolutely, the fight continues, but we were just so proud and so honored to be a part of this victory at Harvard and a part of this broader movement uh, this past fall. Were you able to sit across the table from Macau and the trustees? And if so, what were those conversations like? Yeah. So we had met with them uh, a number of times in the previous years and we always appreciated the dialogue, but it was clear that they were just not on the same page with us when it came to the reality of climate risk and the the urgent need to take on fossil fuel companies and act in a a socially responsible manner uh, in regards to their investments. And so that's why... We thought it was very important to couple meetings and conversations with protests and with legal challenges and with efforts to organize our community. We think it was the the combination of pressure on all of those fronts, from students, faculty, and alumni over 10 years, that was influential in pushing Harvard to finally shift on this and in doing so, send out massive ripples across the financial sector.
0: Let's get into the, the legal complaint, because Divest Harvard filed a legal complaint with the Massachusetts Attorney General in 2021, arguing that the university's fossil fuel investment holdings violate the state's Uniform Prudent Management of Institutional Funds Act, which outlines certain charitable responsibilities for all nonprofit institutions. Such an interesting angle to take from the legal front versus, hey, you're just destroying the planet by investing in these companies. You actually found a statute to lean on. How did that come
1: to pass? For 10 years, we tried to make the argument that fossil fuel investments were immoral. It was in March of last year that we decided to kick it up a notch and say that these investments were also illegal. And the argument was, was simple. Institutional investors have a duty to invest in a prudent manner. They have a duty to act with care, skill, and caution to preserve the value of the fund in the long run. And fossil fuels are simply a horrible way of doing this. In the long run, they're a bad investment whereas divesting is the good bet. There was a recent study out from BlackRock that showed that funds which divest universally don't lose money, indeed, often make money. And that's coupled with the massive social consequences of fossil fuel companies, and thus the incompatibility of uh, holding those stocks with the specific charitable missions of nonprofit investor like Harvard. And so it's with those two arguments, the pure prudence argument that these are a financially bad bet and the charitable purpose argument that these contradict Harvard's legal responsibilities as a charity it's taking those arguments that we decided to put some legal pressure on harvard so as you know we filed a complaint with the massachusetts attorney general it was backed by a number of top scholars in the field including one of the legal scholars who helped write the law in question and we think it made a difference the massachusetts attorney general was absolutely taking it very seriously we met with their office several times And Harvard was taking it very seriously too. Our organizations noted that when Harvard announced its investment, they all but quoted the language of our complaint. This has much broader applicability. The law in question exists in forty-nine out of fifty states. Fossil fuels are not a good investment by any fiduciary standards in any part of the country. And so we've been thrilled to see this legal argument continue to spread. And we are sure that as the incompatibility of fossil fuel industry and the interests of the financial world and of society more broadly become clear that legal questions about the fiduciary soundness of fossil fuel investments will only continue to grow. Yeah.
0: Talk about precedent. You're helping set one big time here. And you're not just calling for Harvard to completely divest from the fossil fuel industry. You want the university to reinvest. You are saying you're calling for Harvard to leverage its financial power, which is great for reparative justice by supporting environmentally sustainable, socially responsible, and community-based investment. You want them to redeploy
1: the capital towards things that you think are better absolutely because it's the right thing to do and it's the financially smart thing to do the simple truth is that oil is an investment of the past and institutional investors have a duty to look towards the future that's why it's it's simply incoherent to be claiming to be a responsible investor while investing in fossil fuels And that's why investors have a a massive role to play in helping bring about the energy transition helping build out uh, renewable energy and green technology and justice solutions for our communities and our planets. In doing so, they'll be on, on the right side of this crucial issue. They'll also be able to benefit by ensuring that they're on the right side of this massive economic transformation.
0: When our listeners are very familiar now with ESG, you guys are right in the middle of that, the environmental part of it, the social part of it, and the governance part of it. And you're pushing this big $50 billion plus endowment to try to do the right thing. I think it's absolutely fascinating. You're also calling for Harvard to address what you call gaping holes in its net zero by 2050 endowment pledge by outlining these interim targets for endowment decarbonization, guaranteeing the investments will focus, on absolute emissions reductions rather than the carbon offsets that a lot of companies try to do, and the commitment to pursue investment opportunities that support what you're calling a rapid and just transition to a clean energy economy. You guys are not playing around here. You want the money redeployed for the right reasons. So these are big asks. Not only are you asking them to take money out of these companies that they've invested in, probably for decades. They probably have a lot of Harvard alum board members on them. You're saying, take it out of here and put it in the places that matter the most. How receptive
1: is the university to these other demands? We're confident that these demands are the steps which any socially responsible investor needs to be thinking about. Fossil fuels are simply a, an irresponsible investment by this point. Investors have a, a duty to be cautious and investment in coal oil, and gas is, is not the way to fulfill that. And investors have a duty to think in the long term and to seek to act in a responsible way uh, that will protect the their own bottom line and the society in which all these funds exist. And so that's why we are excited about the uh, potential that institutions like Harvard have when it comes to ensuring that their financial powers are used for good. It goes
0: even beyond that. I got really lost reading all the literature because there's so much good stuff on your site and throughout, but you're also asking Harvard to stop lending its prestige and its power to the fossil fuel industry, That's powerful name in ways other than investment. You're saying you want want Harvard to cease allowing fossil fuel interests to fund campus research and programming or recruit on campus. You don't want the big oil companies looking for the next generation of great engineers there. At the very least, you're saying Harvard must take immediate steps to make transparent the imprint of fossil fuel industry funding on campus and in the research it produces, that's a pretty big step too. Why is that important to
1: you? Fossil fuel companies are just structurally misaligned with the sort of action made on climate. And thus, when they partner with Harvard, whether it's in the fact that for many years, Harvard was defending investments in them, or whether it's continued uh, entanglements in climate research It allows them to greenwash themselves. It allows them to say, oh, look, we're responsible. We're working with actors like Harvard. Meanwhile, Harvard's not getting a lot in return. Their name is simply being used to legitimize the actions of these companies. So that's why we think divestment was an essential step and why we continue to push for Harvard to ensure that, for example, fossil fuel money is not underlying climate research where it is an inherent and unmanageable conflict of interest.
0: You got some buildings there named after families that made their fortune in the fossil fuel industry. You got some research centers there that are named after that. Probably some grants running through there. This again is not such a simple switch for a university to turn off and we all know that how has Harvard been responsive to to these types
1: of demands? You know, we've been pushing them lately on a lot of the conflict of interest issues. And there's actually been quite a lot of interest from administration and so on, because they realize the importance of protecting the uh, integrity of Harvard's research. The fossil industry is simply not a good faith actor. They've spent years defending their business model through things like attacks on academia, including attempts to delegitimize and discredit some of Harvard's very own faculty. This is why it was dangerous for Harvard to be defending investments in them um, for many years and why we have been grateful that they have been interested in hearing us out on why more broad conflicts of interest are not in the institution's interest or in the interests of the planet.
0: As we said at the top, there are other universities that are starting to follow suit, other groups like yours that are popping up in other universities. That must be gratifying to watch. But what's the ultimate end goal with your consortium and all these other uh, groups around this space? Is it complete divestment? as you've outlined for Harvard, and what are you looking for to do in terms of cooperation with groups
1: like yours across the university landscape? The goal is climate justice. The goal is a a cleaner and fairer world for everyone. And divestment is just a very important tactic as we see it to get there. The evidence is clear that divestment works. I mean, even fossil fuel companies have admitted on the record in government disclosures, for example, that the movement is posing a real risk to their ability to finance the status quo. And Thus, what students are doing on campuses, what worshipers are doing in church pews, what pensioners are doing is having a real impact. So that's why divestment has scored a number of wins so far and why we are really, really gratified to see it continue to spread around the country. I mean, just last month, students at five elite schools, Princeton, Yale, Stanford, MIT and Vanderbilt, filed legal complaints with their attorneys general, alleging similar breaches of fiduciary duty by uh, investments in fossil fuels. So divestment will continue to spread so long as players in the financial sector remain unserious about the need to take part in a just transition. And activists look forward to helping investors ensure they're part of the solution and not the problem. Yeah, well, you're
0: doing it for sure. And this is a ten-year-old organization. The best Harvard has been around for a while. How do you guys ensure the continuity? How did it get past you know, from the last person to you? And how do you keep it going and keep the momentum
1: going so students in the future can keep the movement as strong as it is? It seems to me that for many years, Harvard's response to the, the divestment movement was hoping that it would just go away, that it would just die out as as people cycle in and out and graduated, and you didn't see that. Just because the climate crisis is not some fad, it's not some passing interest for our generation. It is literally our futures on the line. So that's why I think students stayed engaged in this fight for a decade, because we believe that Harvard, as a sophisticated and powerful investor and, and, and leading institution, has the potential to be a big part of the solution. That's why we held them to account for 10 years, because we knew they could do better. And we are glad that eventually they sought our way. Incredible. What an incredible story. And it's still
0: unfolding. So what's next for Connor Chung? You're a junior, but uh, you think in a law degree, what does this make you want to do with your career now that you've been so heavily involved and you've been a participant
1: in really creating change? What's next for Connor Chung? Oh, gosh, personally, I'm not sure. I will just say participating in the divestment movement has certainly been an incredible honor and it's taught me so much. And I think the same is true for, for so many activists around the country. For whom this has been a political education, a financial education, and this has given a lot of us just so many tools for making a positive difference. And we look forward to uh, continuing to use them, both to hold investors to account uh, within the uh, divestment movement specifically, and to fight for uh, climate justice more broadly.
0: It's going to be fascinating to watch. I have a feeling we're going to be talking to you for years to come. And folks, we're going to link... To divest Harvard's website and some of the papers that it's put out, so you can check them out yourself. But definitely do check it out because what's happening up there in Cambridge, Massachusetts, among this group is groundbreaking and it is making a big difference. Connor Chung, one of the principal activists with
1: Divest Harvard, thanks so much for joining the Green Investor. Really good to have you. Well, it really took a a village to make Victory uh, Last Fall possible and to power the broader divestment movement. But thank you so much for for speaking with me. It's been wonderful. It's time for Green Facts, that part of the show
0: when we get to dig into some new data and reporting around the world of green investing. And this week, we're asking the question whether rich people emit more emissions than the not so rich. Well, analysts from the World Inequality Lab, which is led by the Paris School of Economics and the University of California at Berkeley, recently issued a study that focused on varying measures of consumer income rather than gross domestic product, which is the traditional benchmark. As it turns out, per the study, personal wealth does more than national wealth to explain the sources of emissions, which means that climate progress may mean curbing the carbon output of the wealthier among us. Researchers at WIL examined a range of data from diet to car ownership, stock investments in global trade, to estimate individual carbon output. The top 10% of polluters, which is about 770 million people, which is roughly the population of Europe, are the climate equivalent of the world's wealthiest decile, those who earn more than $38,000 a year. That doesn't sound like a lot of money, but consider that the median global income is only $9,700 a year. And the more we make, the more emissions we emit. We travel more, we own vehicles, we consume, and we emit. It's time to play Unpack the Acronym, that part of the show, when we try to deconstruct the alphabet soup that is green and sustainable investing and it's a never-ending process, my friends. This week's acronym, CDSB. That stands for the Climate Disclosure Standards Board, which, according to its website, is an international consortium of business and environmental NGOs, non-governmental organizations. It's committed to advancing and aligning the global mainstream corporate reporting model to equate natural capital with financial capital. The CDSB does this by offering a framework for reporting environmental information with the same rigor as financial information. In turn, this helps them to provide investors with decision-useful information via the mainstream corporate report, enhancing the efficient allocation of capital. The CDSB works with various groups to set these reporting standards, including the Green Finance Platform, the Alliance for Corporate Transparency, Business for Nature, Corporate Reporting Dialogue, CRD, and the Global Reporting Initiative, GRI, among others. Check out CDSB's website at cdsb.net for more information on these standards, and we'll link to it in the show notes. Let's go out this week with a trip into environmental history. And on March 30th, 1867, Secretary of State William H. Seward agreed to purchase Alaska from Russia for $7.2 million. Critics attacked Seward for secrecy surrounding the deal, which became known as Seward's folly. The press mocked his willingness to spend so much on, quote unquote, Seward's icebox and President Andrew Johnson's polar bear garden. Today, the state of Alaska owns approximately 60 million acres of tideland, shorelands, and submerged lands and manages 40,000 miles of coastline. Alaska also sits on very rich oil deposits on land and off its coast. According to the EIA, crude oil production in Alaska averaged 448,000 barrels a day in 2020. That was the lowest level of production since 1976, but we were in the throes of a pandemic in 2020. As nations try to become more energy independent, it's very likely that there will be more drilling in Alaska. Well, that does it for this edition of The Green Investor. A big thanks to Connor Chung from Divest Harvard for joining the show. They are getting things done up in Cambridge. We will link to all the reports we mentioned in our show notes, which you can find at investopedia.com slash Podcast. You'll find transcripts and show notes for all our episodes there. Thanks for listening. And if you haven't already, rate and review us and recommend us to friends and colleagues if you like what you're hearing. We'd also like to hear from you. So send us a feedback and shoot us a note at podcast at investopedia.com, DM us on Instagram or Twitter, or send me a telegram if you have feedback or ideas for future episodes. Thanks for tuning in and keep it green.